are listening to the Ideas to Profits podcast, hosted by myself, Ross Blaine, and with my co-author, Dr. Paul Dick. And weekly, we have special guests to add to our conversations about the ideas inside I2P. Download all the latest I2P episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Ross Blaine and I've got with me Amber Richardson, Head of Communicator PR, who's our publicist, and my co-author Paul Dick. Today we're going to be talking about something that we think is important, and that's to understand if a venture is really viable, if it will work. There are seven questions that Paul and I have put in the book that we think would be helpful. And what we're going to do today is discuss those seven questions albeit briefly, but if you want more information, get a copy of I2P, and most importantly, keep watching because over the next little bit, workshops will be coming on with these various things covered. So, to start off with, Amber, have you run into ventures where you've gone, ooh, I don't know, and how did you go about finding out whether you wanted to work with them and be involved with them? Well, you know, um, yes, I have come across many ventures that I wasn't sure if are right fit for us. I feel like from a public relations perspective, it really depends on your morals and what you're comfortable with. If you believe in the product, you can promote that product. And uh, if you don't believe in the product, then maybe it's a better product for someone else. So uh, it's important when deciding which clients you're going to work with to, first of all, have passion. And I think that's where a lot of uh, these products start um, and how they get so big and so successful. Neat. Now, Paul, you must have run across a whole bunch of, I'm going to say, wacko things, Paul, and things that are credible. How do you go about determining what you want to work with, because it could be a big waste of time, couldn't it? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, Ross, and something we get asked all the time. I mean, ultimately, products belong to companies, and so understanding the market dynamics around a product and your ultimate end user is, is so critical. And that includes a whole gamut of things that we'll talk about, you know, the value proposition, the competitive landscape, and ultimately the return back to your clients. Without a client, you don't have a product and you don't have a company. Question one, we really dealt with how a product solves a major pain point, and that's something we all look at to see whether we're going to get involved. But question number two is interesting because it has this concept or idea been run past objective third parties. Interestingly enough, I've found too often that people go to their friends and family to get answers instead of objective third parties. What is an objective third party, Amber? Um, objective, an objective third party is uh, someone that you ask basically before you start your concept or idea about how they have done it. Usually they're an expert in their fields. They have a lot of experience doing it. 
um, they've made all the mistakes. So hopefully you don't have to reinvent a lot of that wheel. Um, so basically how we do it, uh, you know, we would ask someone who's already done it successfully, number one, get some pointers from them and kind of see where their pain points were. Um, and also ask what the clients want. Um, I, I think a lot of times people pass over that stakeholder, which is the client, and ask what they want and ask what they need and what they are looking for. Um, and what issues when you're talking to the, to the um, expert in the matter in whatever you're looking for, what issues have you come up with? Because the chances are when you try and do a similar thing, you're going to have those same issues. So let's create non-issues let's fix the issues that they had before or hopefully they let you know their mistakes and how they fix them so then when you go and make your mistakes they'll be more evolved mistakes so there's a saying history teaches you the mistakes you could make again right and that's what you're trying to find out and honestly especially you know we've worked in nonprofits together a bit ross especially there there is years wasted by people who just simply don't ask the person before what the mistakes were. Um, and, you know, I think that's overlooked by a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs, and it could really, uh, you know, make it an easier transition to get that product launched. Paul, you deal in the scientific world. Subject matter experts. How do you go about finding them? How do you go about questioning them, Paul? How do you go about dealing with them without giving away any secrets? How do you get that information from subject matter experts, Paul? Yeah, no, I, that's a good question. And just just to build on what's been, been said, no, I, I think it's it's important that they be objective, that they be impartial, uh, that they be potential users of your products or people that will influence the use of their product. And then it's important to figure out how to structurally work with them. And that can be very informal or it can be very formal. So you can include them in your market assessment. You can include them in focus groups. You could create advisory panels to bring them in and talk with them in, in groups. And ultimately, the ones that really work for you and add value, you can use them you know, in testimonials to help shape your, your messaging as you launch new, new products. So, but the critical part is they know the area, um, they are independent, and potentially they can be, may become advocates if, uh, if in the right space. I have found that by going to subject matter experts, rather than going to friends and family, that I get the critical information I need. Whereas friends and family all too quickly go, oh, Amber, that's wonderful. Paul, why didn't I think, why didn't somebody think of this before? You're so smart. How do you tell whether a subject matter expert, Paul, is credible? Well, I, th I think as Amber said, I, I think it's their... Uh... A, they need to know the space. B, they need to know kind of the place you want to be in the space. And B, they're really honest that they're not doing this to kind of be a better friend. They're being this to, to be honest. And, and ultimately, that will make them, make them a better friend going going forward. So I think honesty, um, knowledge, and uh, yeah, just familiarity with the space. One last question for you, Amber. Public relations. Mm -hmm. Public relations is notorious for having to deal when situations come up. Okay. How do you determine somebody who's giving you information is credible? How, how do you go about... Do you ask questions? What do you do? 
Well, I mean, what I do in public relations, we have something called an informational interview. And basically what that means is you find someone, an expert in their field. I would just base that on the accomplishments that they've had. For example, if you're going to be, um, you know, if you want to expand a PR agency, go to a, one of the biggest PR agencies that is your looks like something you would want in your 10-year plan and ask the CEO or the founder or the owner if you can have an informational interview with them in their company, you will be surprised how many people will actually let you come in. They'll tell you about their business. They'll tell you things they wish they had known when they started. Um, and basically, you find out those people by looking at the concept and idea and find out who created that. Perfect. Thank you. Now, Amber and Paul, I'm going to make things a little more complex. Of our seven questions, I'm tying two of them together. That's question number three. What are the relevant points of differentiation from those of competing products and services? And question number four, how do you collect the evidence to prove substantial enough clients are willing to pay the price for your product? They interrelate, so Paul, let me ask you a question. Share of wallets, huge. People only have so much money they can spend on a product. And how do you go about with your clients positioning the products so that they'll say, yeah, this is worth the value. This is going to relieve the pain I need. No, it's excellent, Ross. And, and again, to build on what we said earlier, I mean, it starts off with knowing the market and knowing your fit. But ultimately, uh, you will face competition and knowing how you how you fit within the competitive landscape and, and win at that competitive landscape is, is really, really critical. So kind of best fit within industry is something you should you should think about. So you think about your features, your values, the problem you're trying to solve, and really how you're different, and really how you can either be best in class, first in class, or, or disruptive to really stand out versus other uh, competitors uh, so that you're the first, uh, first in line in terms of product purchase. Now that we've talked about uh, concept and ideas, and gathering evidence is important understanding what makes your product relevant to the purchaser why they'll pay the price is important in paul's case you're dealing with tangible products that can be used by people they're swallowed they're injected etc etc in your case amber we're dealing with products that are intangible it's a service how do you go about collecting the information that says enough people are willing to pay for your pharmaceutical products, Paul, that you commercialize. So, Paul, here's the questions. Number three and four I'm combining, so put them all into one answer. What are the relevant points of the product or service differentiation from those of competing products? How do you go about determining what's relevant? And number four question in this, has evidence been collected to prove substantial enough customers will pay the money so the profit can be made. No, it's a it's a great question, and and I, I think Amber and I addressed some of this earlier in the in the kind of the market assessment kind of that very first question. But to kind of take that and build on it, you know, you, you have to be kind of best fit within your industry. That takes what you do, your product, its features. Ultimately, though, it's about value creation, the problem you're solving. The, the newness that you're adding to a, to a space. So I always like to say you should be either best in class, novel, or disruptive. 
And that all means you, but it also means how you differentiate it to your, uh, to your, uh, to your competition. And that re it really doesn't matter whether uh, that's in a service business or a product business. You have to create that value. And, and then when you kind of launch, uh, launch effectively, show you care, demonstrate your knowledge of the industry, and again, shine. And again, those three, three big words for me are best in class, novel, disruptive. Amber? And, you know, from a, from the same perspective of that, but kind of uh, from a PR lens, uh, when you're thinking about is do you have relevant products or services and why should people buy from you versus someone else? Um, you know, do we tell your story? Have we listened to what you've been telling us the whole time? When we give you reports, are you able to read them? I think that's a huge thing. Um, you know, ease of use, functionality, and accuracy. I think that's a big thing. Um, another thing, you know, that I people are willing to pay for and what really gives you the bang for your buck, let's say, is um, are you measuring what you're doing as you're going along? Can you come back to your team and say, this is what we've done for the past four months. This is what has happened. We've measured it this way and we're either going to continue or we're going to stop and pivot and change. And, you know, that flexibility in public relations is extremely important when building those communication plans. Um, and, you know, I think as long as you're on a right track and everyone has the same goals, your whole PR team understands what your sales and marketing team is saying, and you all are under the same umbrella of understanding, um, you know, that's the first step to realizing what you can do for the client. Once you can do what they want done, I don't really think the pricing is that important. You know, I, I think that people are willing to pay for things that help them. So as long as you're making sure that you can measurably show how their money has been helping their business, you're on the right track in that. It's interesting because question number six that we've got there is in one clear sentence, can you tell why your potential clients will buy the product or service at a profitable price for you? So what I'm hearing you saying is you need to be pretty well clear yes. on why you can help them perform better or achieve more. Yeah. And I think in the beginning, and I, you know, I'm most marketers and public relations uh, professionals would go about it the same way, but providing that plan in the beginning. So you yourself know you can do what they want to be done. Um, and listening to everything the team member says, a lot of times you meet with the business owner, but maybe you've forgotten to meet with the office manager. And there's a lot of parts of that strategy and tactic that you need the input from the office manager because there are things that the business owner is not seeing. And I feel like especially, you know, in corporate communications in regards to public relations, every team member has to contribute to that conversation to make sure that you can provide them value for what they're paying for. Paul, you're in an industry that's notorious for high priced products. Here we go, Paul. You're in the hot I'm ready. seat now. I'm ready. It's okay. <laughs> How do you go about uh, getting your clients to clearly define what the product's going to do and why it's important to them to, to s sell it and for people to buy it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a it's a good, it's a good question, Ross. I mean, ultimately, your product has to fit a need, which is defined by your customer. And once it fits that need, it has to create value and hopefully differential value above your competition so you become the number one choice. And then the other parts that kind of layer over it in terms of it's in, it, it's, it's what Amber was saying, it's, it's the service part of it. So you're there, you care, 
you're backing up your product with knowledge, with tech service, or, or whatever. So there's multiple layers in achieving, uh, you know, kind of a product success and the turn of corporate success, which starts off with innovation in the product, but ultimately a, a smiling, happy client that isn't just that doesn't just buy your product or service once. It's a recurring customer. I used to have a boss that said, if the customer doesn't buy it three times, it's probably not a successful sale. So recurring sales are critical to the success of a company. Thank you. Now, the last question, okay. Too often I see projects fall way short because people don't accumulate or know the resources they need to succeed. There's an old rule, if you get 80% of the resources at hand when you start, your success rate goes up. For those of you who are Top Gun fans like me, you remember when Maverick and Goose were called in front of the Admiral, and the Admiral looked at them and said, Son, your mind's writing checks, your body can't cash. Too often, companies go plunging ahead without knowing if they have the resources they need at hand. Paul, how do you go about helping your clients determine if they have the resources? And how do you know when they have enough to be able to start their project? No, it's excellent. Uh, excellent comment, Ross, and I didn't realize you're, you're such a fan of Tom Cruise. Um, ultimately, I've got my shades every, on, Paul. Everything, everything has to result in commercialization. Uh, that's, the, that's the fact of life and the fact of certainly business and the fact of new and new big uh, and old uh, companies. Um, and so with that, you, you do need a plan, just like you need to understand your customer and plan around that. You need a business plan that kind of flows into an operating uh, commercialization uh, plan, which is pretty tactical. Uh, but I, I've seen lots of companies not know how they make an initial sale, how do they scale that across whatever geographies or areas they want to cover, uh, and how they kind of replicate that success. And then to Amber's point, how do they actually measure success and continue to optimize the, their processes? Um, ultimately, uh, all these companies report to a board or to investors, and so measurement is really important. And, and with that, setting realistic goals in this commercial, commercialization pathway. So Amber, you probably have some additional thoughts in regards to this. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, determining resources before you go ahead is such an important part of not wasting your time and your money and, um, you know, seeing how fast should I grow? When should I grow type thing? Um, as entrepreneurs, I feel like we always have a huge idea that we want to get out. Um, and it's easy to get caught up when you haven't actually determined the resources you actually have. Um, you know, there's financial resources and then there's time management, uh, you know, technological, you know, you, sometimes you can buy it depending on your financial, but uh, basically having enough, a clear plan, as Paul said, in regards to how much time is this going to take me? Do I have an extra 20 hours a week to get this project lifted or am I going to waste my time doing a plan for something I can never actually achieve? Uh, you know, and I think making sure you have those resources first helps you not get discouraged and not have, you know, failure. Minimize failure, I think, is always our goal. Great. Thank you both. Uh, but in closing, okay, we've got seven questions. you find them in the book. We have a wonderful chart on page 46 in the book that sort of takes you how you 
the stages that you go through to get a project up and commercialized. But when you answer these seven questions and you get a no to any one of them, what do you recommend the client should do, the person should do? I go ahead and say, if you get a no, don't see it as a no. See it as a next opportunity to go out and do more research. Do more research. When you get all yeses, then you've got the data you need to start a planning process. Right. Would you both agree with that scenario? I definitely agree with that. Um, and even in regards to time, you can say, okay, I don't have 20 hours available for this project, but I have three. So maybe instead of having a growth strategy that's a six month, I can do a 12 month. It's still going to get me where I need to be in a year, but it's going to be done properly. And none of my other projects are going to fall below the wayside while that happens. You know, I'm just, just to build on that. Yeah. And, and in my space, there, there can be multiple places where you can get no's. You get no's in the product development area where you want to hear them fast and early, uh, kill things early if, if you're not going to make it to market, or if it's a regulated product, you'll know that early. Uh, and then, yeah, when you get into the client customer space, listen for the no's, be informed by the customers, and as uh, Amber says, be, be flexible and versatile in your, in, your, uh, in your messaging and be prepared to, uh, to that amazing word pivot as appropriate. I think that a no is not necessarily a no, though. A no is a sign that says, I better do a little more research. I better take that no and figure out how I turn it into a plus sign, a yes. Would you all concur with that? I definitely agree. I seldom take no as an actual no. So, you know, I think I've done well in that situation. <laughs> and I, I think I agree, but I think a no might say, and Amber said this already, is to pivot to something else to... Uh, achieve earlier market and then come back to the to the to the no because speed to market is really critical and you want to I mean the faster you get to market the more people believe in you the happier investors are and some things are going to be harder to get to so maybe if you do hear no maybe that's a second or third priority but yeah I think uh, a no is kind of an opportunity no the way you have it planned right now isn't going to work but go back and you can make it work it just is going to take a different way to get you those results right. As they say in Top Gun, check your sixes because something's going to come up from below and shoot you down, Maverick. Thank you, Amber. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thanks, this Tom. was fun. Thanks, Tom. Big crowd at Ross. Join our online community at ideas2profits.ca where you can take advantage of workshops, complimentary downloadables, and monthly newsletters. And finally... Should you require someone to do a keynote address to one of your associations or groups, Paul and I are available. We also have a series of workshops that will be downloaded from the website that you can absolutely provide to your staff in your working environments. Thank you again. Have a great day.